in fact, Bishop Peter had left Los Angeles for New York to make the trip when a telegram arrived at his home from Bishop Yakovus telling us not to go to the Patriarchate. Now, exactly why was that? Well, I think it had to do because of the, you know, the, the negative things being said. One of the things that was brandished was that we were breaking protocol by going over his head. I do not think that that is a legitimate argument. I did not then, and I do not now. But because we had been working with his appointed representative, Bishop Maximus, who had informed him at each step of the way what was going on, and he had, he had made the arrangements for us to go to Constantinople, not us. Bishop Peter had tried to meet with Archbishop Yakovus to specifically, personally get his blessing. And the dialogues had even had, as I mentioned yesterday, people who were participating as his personal representatives. I think it is disingenuous to say that he was, you know, we went all the way around him, and I don't think we did at all. But anyway, here's what happened then. Bishop Maximus was pulled off the trip at the very last second. Well, then what are we going to do? We needed some help. Bishop Maximus appointed one of his priests, Father Gregory Wingenbach, who had formerly been in, in Nashville and had known Bishop Gordon and their community in Nashville and now was in, in Pittsburgh, appointed Father Gregory to go in his place to Constantinople. Further, we had invited Apostolos Athanasakis, who is a professor of classics at the University of California at Santa Barbara, uh, to accompany us. It, it just so happened he was in Crete that year teaching. He was going to simply meet us in Constantinople and act as our uh, translator. And, and uh, he, Apostolos is brilliant. You know, he speaks like nine or ten languages fluently, and it was really fun to watch him converse back and forth with, with, with folks. All of this was going on, and some of us knew about it. Bishop Peter and those that were with him, the rest of us had no clue until we were already en route. Bishop Jensen found out about it, well, and, and I found out it when I picked him up and took him to the airport in Chicago, and we flew from there to New York, and then we were all going to meet in London and then fly from London to Istanbul for the, for the trip. In London, the discussion was, what is the nature of this trip now? We were going to have three days of meetings, but if you aren't, we aren't even sure exactly what's going to be taking place. Well, instead of then framing it or thinking of it as a dialogue, we decided that we would just go on and make it as a pilgrimage. That is, we would go and we would present ourselves, and by the grace of God, perhaps something would, you know, would open up on the other end. So we flew into Istanbul. Dr. Rossi's description yesterday of conditions in the Holy Land reminded me of our experience when we got off the airplane in Istanbul. There were people with AK-47 submachine guns all over the airport. I just, you know, I just seen the movie 
Midnight Express. Did you, have you ever see that? <laughs> Which is about a person in a Turkish prison. And, and there we were, and I, I had flashes of ending up somehow in a, in a Turkish prison. In any event, we, uh, we arrived on Friday, and Sunday was Pentecost, June 2nd. We gathered in the Hotel Central, that we, that, which is where we were staying. It was advertised as a third-class hotel. That's probably generous. <laughs> it, it was uh, rather no air conditioning. This is the Middle East. This is June. It was hot, hot, hot. And the, uh, so you had to open up the windows, and because the sanitation wasn't so good, the smell that came wafting in was not so cool either. Further, it was Ramadan at that time, which is the Islamic holy month where they fast from sunrise to sunset. Sunrise at that particular time was about 4.30 in the morning and uh, sunset was about 8.30 in the evening. So they wouldn't eat anything or drink anything from you know, sunrise to sunset. But after sunset, they would eat and they would, uh, uh, well, um, socialize until at about 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, there would be a uh, last signal from the minarets that you should have your last meal before sunrise. And then at 4.30, the call to prayer came out. Now, if you have your windows open, all of this noise is just coming in. And I, I found I could hardly sleep at, at, at all. We met, though, uh, at the hotel on, on Saturday and composed a letter that, or were, actually we were more like edited a letter that had been composed by Bishop Maximus to bring with us to the, the uh, Patriarchate. And we worked on this letter with Apostolos Athanasakis and uh, Father Gregory Wingenbach, who are both bilingual types, and drafted the letter both in Greek and in English. And then we also worked on a draft of a second letter protesting the way that we were being treated. That we were going to submit to, submit to the patriarchate. We had a huge discussion, first on Saturday night and then Sunday night after the visit to the patriarchate, which I'll describe uh, in a moment. But the key element of the letter that created the tension was a suggestion in the letter that we be received as a diocese within the ecumenical patriarchate. Now, do you, you hear that phrase? What does that imply? How many bishops are there in a diocese? One. How many did we have sitting around the table? Nineteen. Now, there was an ecclesiological and value judgment, you see, being wrestled with in the course of, the, uh, of even presenting that, that letter. And in fact, it was so controversial as to whether or not that letter should be sent that several of the bishops refused to sign it. Bishop Jensen, Bishop Gleege, Bishop Ellison, Bishop Walker, Bishop Blythe refused to sign the letter. I signed it. I have to say that uh, I signed it with a mix of 
hoped that they wouldn't take the, the deal, and a little bit of ego, because if some historian someday ever looked at that, I wanted my name to be on it. The, uh, yeah. Counterbalancing the guys in the East, what was the spirit of the Western EOC? Yeah. Now, it was actually an interesting, and, the, and let, let me hold that for a second, because the Sunday night discussion really has a whole number of themes, and it doesn't break out exactly like you might think it would. Because there were, there were rather than two, the way I've been presented, there actually were three discernible positions in the Senate, uh, in the Sunday night uh, discussions. Um, I have my contemporaneous notes, and I have uh, Father Mark's contemporaneous notes, and I have Father Peter's notes, uh, Gilquist's notes from the discussion. And it's interesting the, where there's the different, uh, you know, kind of ways that, that we were perceiving things and different ideas, but anyway. So uh, we just, the next morning was Pentecost Sunday, and we were to go to the patriarchal church for liturgy that day. And um, interestingly, in Turkey, you, you can't wear clerical garb if you're um, there at all. It's, uh, you have to wear street clothes because it's an Islamic country, and uh, by law, you cannot. The only one that could get away with it that I've seen historically is the pope. Not the ecumenical patriarch. If he leaves the compound of the fanar, he has to wear a business suit. And the metropolitans and so forth, they wore business suits when they came outside the compound, except in the church. Now, Pope John Paul II, I saw the photos of him going to visit the patriarch, and he was wearing his little papal outfit. <laughs> I shouldn't say it that way, should I? <laughs> He's wearing his normal papal outfit, all the time, and he got away with it, I guess because he's a worldwide figure, but if you're under the thumb, and believe me, the patriarch, it was clear, was on, patriarch Kate as a whole was under the thumb of the Turkish government uh, while we were there. 